In today's episode, we open our Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 3. In this chapter, we will witness the power struggle and the bloodshed that mark the transition from Saul's dynasty to David's. Abner, the loyal supporter of Saul's house, defects to David after a quarrel with Ishbosheth, Saul's weak son and heir. He will negotiate with David to unite Israel under his rule, but he will also face the wrath of Joab, David's ruthless general. We will also see how Abner is honored as a prince and a great man in Israel, and this chapter shows us how God fulfills his promise to David, but also how sin and violence complicates his path to the throne. Good morning and blessed Pentecost. Today is Thursday, June 15th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word where each weekday morning we explore the Holy Scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is brought to you in part by a generous contribution from the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. LHF produces a variety of Lutheran resources in uh, foreign languages and distributes them around the world. Learn more about all their translating and publishing work and how they can help your ministry on their website at lhfmissions.org. But without any further ado, please join me in welcoming my guest this morning to help us explore and discern 2 Samuel Samuel chapter 3, and it's the Reverend Tim Winterstein, pastor of Faith Lutheran Church in East Wenatchee, Wenatchee, I believe, Washington. (laughs) Brother Pastor, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on. Well, I am excited to have you on. Now, I know you've been on with my predecessor, Brady, who is now the host of Concord Matters on the weekends, sort of a freedom up some time to be district president in Minnesota North. Uh, but I, I haven't had you on before. So if you would just share with the folks at home a little bit about who you are and how God is working through you and the saints there in East Wenatchee, Washington. Sure. Um, let's see. In July, I'll have been a pastor for 16 years, and uh, in October, I'll have been here in East Wenatchee for uh, 10 years. And uh, I'm married, um, and uh, we have four children, and we love the Wenatchee Valley. Um, I was in Minnesota for six-plus years before this, uh, Minnesota North, way up north, uh, near Grand Forks, North Dakota, uh, for, yeah, like I said, six years. And uh, um Beyond that, uh, we, uh, I, I have an, a podcast with my brother where we talk about movies and, uh, awesome. and then I write well, some tell, things about, well, I was just, I didn't mean to interrupt, but tell the folks no. where they can hear your podcast. Uh, saints of I'm not, I'm not shy about pushing that a little yeah, bit. Yeah. Let's get that um, plug in. That's great. Yeah. So my brother's a kind of a film, he went to film school and, uh, as a pastor, we thought, uh, Let's do let's do something where we talk film and theology at the same time, and so we do that um, uh, well, once a month or so. And uh, I write some things about movies for thejaggedword.com as well. But Love uh, that. so that's my my sideline stuff. <laughs> well, I'm looking at your website now. Uh, it looks like you uh, at least at, at time that we're talking here, you've you've had uh, some <laughs> the whale and christian imagery and movies for lent and i i love uh, christ imagery in films i like seeing these uh, themes that you can't escape from uh, from from you know even if there's popular culture and they don't think that they're appealing to christian or biblical imagery at all they find their way in and i'm sure you guys talk about a lot of other things too 
But I think that's uh, that's exciting. I, I'll have to check that out. I didn't know about you guys. I'm glad to get the word out there. Yeah, happy to have anybody listen. So thanks. Excellent. Well, okay. So I'm looking at pictures of Wenatchee, and boy, it is a beautiful area. I'm from Western North Carolina. We have mountains, but not quite like what I'm seeing in these pictures. Uh, and you said you were up in northern Minnesota for a while. My first call was in um, near Purim, Minnesota. So I was yeah. about an hour and a half east of Fargo. So maybe near Lutheran uh, Island camp, I suppose. Yeah, right up in that area. So certainly in your same neck of the woods. Uh, I ended up in Connecticut for a while, and now I'm back in Minnesota, but I'm in the southwest corner. So I'm nearly in North uh, South Dakota, rather, mm -hmm. uh, or in Iowa, depending on which way I drive. But but the city of Wenatchee looks beautiful. Is Do you have family up there, or did you just take the call, and that's where you ended up? Well, I'm from Washington originally, from Olympia, on the other side of the mountains. Um, and uh, my parents moved from Olympia to Boise, so they're now no longer in the state. Uh, my mother-in-law and uh, sister-in-law um, uh, have moved and, and live in East Wenatchee as well. So uh, I'm from Washington, and we do have some family. My brother-in-law also lives on the other side of the mountains. So Okay, well, that's great. Well, that's yeah. certainly uh, a, good, a good reason to be where you are is to be around family. I, I kind of lament that I'm not closer to my family. My wife's too. But I tell you what, speaking of families, in oh. our text today, we see the family and the supporters of Saul uh, slowly losing their influence. David rising more and more to power. He's been anointed king. Uh, before we dive into the text, though, I'd like for you to uh, start our time together with a word of prayer. Sure. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. Uh, there are a lot of things that uh, seem uh, difficult and uh, are difficult for us to understand, but we know that through all of these people and all of these things, uh, you continue to do your work, uh, just as today uh, you continue to do your work um, through and sometimes in spite of sinners. Uh, we thank you for those promises that you have brought to the, their fulfillment in Christ. Uh, help us to see how these the, the people and the, the works that you are doing uh, throughout the scriptures uh, lead to their fulfillment in your son. Uh, we thank you for that and open our ears and hearts to, to hear that word in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, before we read chapter 3 or start to read it, it'd be a good idea to catch people up, those who may might have missed the past episode or two. We've just started 2 Samuel, so uh, maybe not everybody's caught up. If you would, just in a, in a brief way, uh, tell people where have we been so we can set the foundation for where we're going. Uh, so, I mean, broadly, uh, Saul, uh, the first king of Israel, um, for various reasons, not obeying the word of God, uh, the chief one, um, is, is going to be replaced by David as king. And David's already, um, let's see, has he been anointed. No, uh, that's coming or that's in chapter two, second Samuel, but he doesn't actually right. uh, become king until later in second Samuel. Um, but, uh, Saul has, and his sons, uh, including Jonathan, David's close friend, uh, were killed at the end of first Samuel and into second Samuel, David laments over them. Uh, and now there's sort of a power struggle, uh, as there's going to be later with David's sons, 
including Solomon, uh, over the throne. Uh, this is a lot like, uh, I mean, how many kinds of, this is, this is palace intrigue, uh, at its, at its, uh, strongest. And, uh, um, and so there are a lot of things going on, a lot of people doing things that they think are going to get them the throne or the people that they support, but, uh, that doesn't always work out the way that they hope it will. And also God, of course, is the one, uh, doing everything to have his, uh, man, David on the throne. Exactly. It, it seems like David has, and we discussed this way back in, in 1 Samuel when we were talking about soon as Samuel anoints David as the future king, we know that he won't take the throne for a while, but it does really seem like as the Spirit leaves Saul and goes to David that he's kind of the king in exile, so to speak, although David rightfully honors the God's anointed. He honors the office mm-hmm. that Saul holds and avoids all the opportunities he had to basically assassinate Saul. And so now we're in a transitional period. The son of Saul is made king of Israel, Ishbosheth. Uh, but really, David is the true king. And so, yeah, it, it's kind of hard to keep up with because David gets anointed in 1 Samuel. He's anointed king in 2 Samuel chapter 2. He's anointed king in 2 Samuel chapter 5 in a couple chapters. So we're really in this transitional period. If I slip into calling David king, then folks at home will know why. But yeah, there, there's a lot of palace intrigue, as you say, when we go through this text. And uh, just to guys, warn folks at home, as I read this text, there are so many Hebrew names. I do my best, but um, we'll try to get through them. I'm going to go ahead and read chapter 3, uh, just beginning with verse 1, and I'm going to read for... Oh, I say just probably till chapter, I'm sorry, verse 5, just, just to get a little bit of the text under our belt. So here we go from the ESV. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon of Ahinoam of Jezreel, and his second Kiliab of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel, and the third Absalom, the son of Maach, the daughter of Talmai, king of Jeshur, and the fourth Adonijah, the son of Hagith, and the fifth Shephatiah, the son of Abital, and the sixth Ithrim of Eglah, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. All right, just pausing there, brother. We're given all of these sons of David, and they're connected, of course, to David's various wives and their mothers. Um, you know, David's taking a many wives. I guess this is evidence of his growing power, but it's a little bit of foreshadowing that there's going to be a lot of division in his household, wouldn't you say? Yeah, and I think um, sometimes it causes some people to, to kind of stumble over, you know, why, why does David have all these wives and, and that sort of question. And I think that that's um, uh, what we can see perhaps from the scriptures illustrated over and over is that uh, no, this never works out well. Um, I mean, even going back all the way to Abraham and, and Sarah and uh, Hagar uh, and it never, it never creates peace uh, in households uh, when there are, 
there was more than one wife, um, not because of the wives, uh, but because of the the conflict that that is brought out. Um, sometimes because of the wives, I should say. Um, but uh, but the 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 rivalries and who's going to take over, and this happens later with David's family. Um, you know, the first verse of this chapter. I noticed something, uh, the way that the, that, uh, at least some of the church fathers take this is that, uh, uh, in terms of the word of God and the promise of God, uh, to David, but applied to the church now, um, that, uh, the word of God, God's church, God's people, uh, always is growing stronger, uh, and, uh, the kingdom of the devil, uh, is always growing weaker, um, uh, mm. even if it doesn't appear to be so. Um, and so they, that's, uh, they, it's kind of just use this as kind of a, um, I don't know, just, uh, it becomes kind of a, a descriptive verse of, of the way the church, a way, the way that God, um, continues to strengthen his church, even in difficult times. I, I think that's an, an interesting point. I, you know, I don't, I, I struggle with it though, because I think if you were in the time of the church fathers, you could visibly see the church growing and getting stronger even amid all mm-hmm. the trials and tribulations. And in these last days, you know, it's not that the church is getting weaker, right? Because, of course, the church is backed up by Christ, and, you know, and we're, we're going to be able to uh, hold the line and even be uh, offensive against the gates of hell and succeed. So we're not worried about that. So it depends on how you define strong, I suppose, because we also see the church getting smaller and smaller. And and, and an illustration that I've used and maybe even overused is one of like a, of a sauce on the stove. As you reduce it, get all boil out all the water, it becomes more and more potent. And, and in many ways, that's the way I see the church. It's, it might be getting smaller, but it is getting stronger. And so maybe not for the same reasons. I certainly agree with the, the Father's interpretation here because we consistently, uh, as the as the sons and daughters of God, as the brothers and sisters of David, of course, in Christ, um, we see that the the house of Saul, which I suppose represents not only the forces of evil, but also just the political forces that would destroy us, we see uh, them not succeeding in the end. Yeah, and I think, I mean, if you look throughout, I mean, I, really starting, I think, in the uh, the book of Judges, um, there, there's nothing going according to the, to what we would say is God's will. Everybody's doing what they, what they want to do. There is no King in Israel. So everyone does what's right in his own eyes. And that really bleeds into Samuel uh, until you get to David. And even then there's still issues, but the over, if you look at the way things are going, it doesn't look like, uh, God's word and God's promise are being, uh, victorious uh, or uh, triumphant, uh, and yet the, I think the main the main word that's running throughout all of this is that no matter what people do, no matter what kinds of things they they themselves try to accomplish, God's going to have His way. And so I think that there is uh, what you said about uh, you know the way things look and the way things are according to the promise uh, that that also is running throughout. Um, throughout these these particular books of the Bible. Oh, absolutely. And so we get all of these different wives, and, and as you pointed out, this can be a stumbling block for many who apply also sort of our, our 
I just want to say, our, I guess, our Western cultural sensitivities to this. Now, certainly God has created man and woman to cling to one another and be husband and wife, and, and all of these different arrangements are a product of sin. I think it's also worth noting, though, that in the cultural context, and probably the reason why we're being told it at this juncture in Second Samuel, is that, for better or for worse, this was what was expected of a king, to, mm-hmm. to have all of these wives and sort of concubines, which is going to come up later, uh, because uh, you know the, he would be trying to propagate his uh, well his seed quite literally, but trying to you know assure for him successors and and he would have uh, uh, sons to help lead and be trustworthy servants, which that's going to bite David in the rear end coming up later, but also daughters to help secure alliances. So you know we we see this going on, and it's not. I guess, prescribed to us as a practice. And as you pointed out, it's also never worked out, but it's, it's something where uh, it's to be expected of the culture. So not as a, an excuse, but as an explanation. Yeah. And certainly Kings were, had political marriages. I, I have a feeling that Solomon did not um, maybe didn't even meet 700 wives or 300 concubines. So sure. I think a lot of that it probably is a political alliances and, uh, you know, sort of rather than, uh, you know, like we think you, you fall in love, you get married. And, and then when you fall out of love, of course, in our culture, you get remarried, but, um, we think of it only in those terms. And that's certainly not the, the, uh, uh, the way that they're thinking about marriage is always. Yeah. And that's, I'm glad you brought that up because what happens next is also while on the surface reading, the first level reading seems to be dealing with a concubine, it, it actually is a little bit deeper than that. It's actually um, referring to an accusation of an attempted coup, to be, to be mm-hmm. honest. Uh, let's read that, verses 6 through 11. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone in to my father's concubine? Well, then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul your father, to his brothers, and to his friends, and have not given you into the hand of David. And yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. God do so to Abner, and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what Yahweh has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul, and to set up the throne of David over Israel, over Judah, from Dam to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word, because he feared him. So Abner's strengthening himself. Abner's Saul's cousin, but he's growing in this sort of political authority, military power. Um, but essentially, Ishbosheth's accusation that he's gone into, uh, which of course means to have sex with one of Saul's concubines, um, really way, really that's a it's sort of a public signal of trying to usurp the throne, as I've read in some commentaries. So, you know, while it seems like it's just on the surface about maybe being with someone he's not supposed to be with, as you were talking about earlier, there's a lot of political intrigue behind some of these relationships. Yeah, and I think in fact this this happens later when David is is old, uh, and, and I think it's Adonijah who uh, who 
uh, asks um, to have David, one of David's concubines, as his wife. Uh, but David sees that for what it is, that this is an attempt to claim him to be king. Um, so I think that that's, that's true. And so um, Ishbosheth seems to be making um, a play that uh, to, to keep Abner from becoming stronger, uh, you know, as the, um, he's, he's making himself strong or strengthening himself in the house of Saul. Um, so Ish, Ishbosheth uh, seems to view that in itself as a threat. And it seems to me, I mean, there's not a lot of detail here, but it seems to me that this is a, uh, a play by Ishbosheth to keep Abner from becoming stronger. Um, and, uh, I was, I, I was looking at this, this, uh, his name, Ishbosheth, uh, se- seems to stand in for, in, um, uh, the man of Baal, um, and which is an interesting name uh, in light of Israel's history. Uh, that uh, perhaps um, there's something else, you know, theologically going on here in terms of who, which god he worships. Um, but he seems rather weak, and he's trying to trying to keep Abner from becoming stronger. It seems to me, uh, and Abner up to this point, in fact, I, I, Abner's the one who kind of elevated or helped Ishbosheth get the throne after Saul's death. So. This is really a, a, a betrayal um, and a kind of a, a, a bold betrayal of Abner's uh, le- allegiance to Saul's family. Absolutely. And, and you talk about his name standing in as like Esh Baal, which is used elsewhere in Scripture. Uh, First Chronicles, for instance, man of Baal or believer Baal exists or something like that. And, and I think that could indicate not only the continued, I guess, depravity and departure from God that Saul's, I guess, family or heritage represents, but, you know, they've also, and we've seen this elsewhere in Scripture, where people will be called something, maybe they weren't even called in real life, but it, it's it's just a, a degrading kind of, of name. I think of, of uh, a lot of different characters that have been given sort of nicknames to demean them. Um, I don't know if that's the case here. It could just show that <laughs> Saul's naming scheme reveals his uh, unfaithfulness to God. But then he says, and Abner's angry, and he gives a strange, and we've seen this before too in 1 Samuel, uh, the, the reference of a dog being like, uh, I guess, as, a, as an insult, right, or a degrading kind mm-hmm. of sentence. Am I a dog's head of Judah? Uh, back in Samuel 17, the Philistine actually says to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And, um, you know, we, so this idea of, of him being insulted and thinking that he's calling him a dog basically by, by doing these things. Um, I, I just wonder, you know, does this, does this sort of division within the house of Saul, you know, why do we not see more of a emphasis on, I guess uniting. Why wouldn't they be trying? You know, Saul was was definitely against David, but we see a lot of accusations going on within the household of Saul. I guess it's just falling apart, is what I'm saying. Yeah, and I think uh, on the surface, it seems to me that Ishbosheth uh, is verse eleven. It says he feared him. I think he feared him before this. That is, he he feared that uh, Abner actually was 
becoming stronger so that he might, in fact, uh, be aiming at the throne or other people might aim that Abner should take the throne. Um, and Ishbosheth just seems, uh, again, it seems to me that this is a an attempt to uh, keep that from happening and to strengthen his own position. But but underneath that and behind that and beyond that, maybe, um, God is is kind of dismantling Saul's house, I think, that, that uh, this, in fact, leads to, it leads to other problems, but it, it Abner intends that, and it seems to know, that uh, David has been proclaimed by God to be the, the next king. And so Abner says, this is kind of Ab, Abner's opportunity to uh, go to the um, divine choice for the king, uh, move away from Saul, and he and he it leads to other issues. Um, but that seems to be he he's going to make he's going to go to David. Um, yeah, basically he's saying you're accusing me of trying to usurp the throne. Well, I tell you what, my job yeah. and my goal is going to make sure David sits on that throne, and that's that's how he ends that powerful message. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you're right, he walks away more afraid. We're going to read a lot more verses now, um, 12 through, oh, a bunch. I'll stop when I feel like it's a good stopping point. Here we go. And now Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. And he said, Good, I will make a covenant with you, but one thing I require of you That is, you shall not see my face until you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michael, for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, Paltiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Bahurim. Then Abner said to him, Go, return. And he returned. And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past you have been seeking David as king over you. Now then bring it about. For Yahweh has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to Benjamin, and then Abner went to tell David at Hebron that all Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. And when Abner came with twenty men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were there with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and gather all Israel to my lord the king, then they may make a covenant with you, and you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. That's the end of verse 21, and we're going to pause right there. Lots of stuff happening. Uh, so, so yeah, Abner keeps his, well, I guess his word, not really a promise, but he, he, he stands by what he says to Ishbosheth, and he sends messengers to David and says, hey, let's get together. Interestingly, though, uh, that David says, well, we're not even going to talk anymore until I get my wife. <laughs> not that he doesn't have enough, but he wants this one, for whom he prayed a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. Of course, we know it was 200, but yeah, so uh, tell us about this. What's going on? Yeah, it's it's interesting. Again, I was reading some uh, in this ancient Christian commentary on on these passages, uh, and uh, the one the comment uh, that the certain church fathers make about this is that uh, is that is David's forgiveness 
of uh, McCall's adultery, uh, which I, I think is probably um, something that they're dealing with in their context. And so they're using it. It seems a little um, this this may also be uh, a sort of um, an attempt to strengthen his position because uh, he was given Saul's daughter uh, after he killed Goliath. Um, and, and then, uh, I forget, I forget exactly. He, he went away and, and so Saul gave her to marry, uh, this other guy. Um, there's a bunch of, there's a couple, I mean, Ishbosheth just listens. He, he just, I think again, this emphasizes his weakness and the weakness of his position. He, he just listens to David. He, he could have said, no, I'm not doing that. Um, instead he goes and he's like, okay, David says this, so you have to do it. And then Abner tells, uh, her husband, uh, go back and he goes back. Um, and, uh, but this is, this seems to be again on the surface, at least the strengthening of David's position as King. Um, he, he's the, he's the one who's going to follow Saul, um, and, uh, from a human perspective. And then of course, uh, God working through this, uh, always to make himself, not that he wills all of each, you know, that he has sort of orchestrated all of this intrigue, but, but he's, he's said that David's going to be king. So he's going to be, um, it, it is, a. but again, I think it just looks like all of these various players trying to, from a human perspective, accomplish their own goals. And it's, that's just, they can't stop God from doing uh, what he has said he's going to do. Well, amen to that. I think on that note, we're going to take just a few minute break. Folks, don't go anywhere. When we come back, Pastor Winterstein and I will keep on going through 2 Samuel chapter 3. We'll see you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo, and with me today is the Reverend Tim Winterstein, pastor of Faith Lutheran Church in East Wenatchee, Washington. Thank you for joining us this morning. I do pray that God's blessing you through our study. Thy Strong Word can be heard on uh, AM 850 in the St. Louis area, but also live or on demand at kfuo.org. And if you want to take the show on the road, you can listen to us as a podcast on KFUO's own mobile app or on your favorite podcasting platform. And if you have a question or comment about today's show or anything else, you can email me at pastorboo at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook. Just drop by and say hello. Now, Pastor, before the break, you know, we were just getting through this and um, as we're going through, David is wanting Michael. Now he has not; they've not been divorced. There's, you know, he he's they're still technically married, 
and he's paid the bride price. And so he wants her return. Perhaps there's a little bit of a testing of the waters to see if he's serious about, um, you know, having this covenant with him. And, and as we read it, we see that he is serious. He, he sends out the message. He, he appeals on the, on behalf of the house of, uh, of Israel to to Benjamin, he appeals to the other elders. He points to the word of God that says, "This David is going to be king and save you from your enemies," and and that's where we ended. You know, Abner says to David in verse twenty one, "I will arise and go, and I will gather all Israel to my lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires." I'm going to read just the rest of this section with 22 through 25. Just then, the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the army that was with him came, it was told Joab, Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king, and he has let him go, and he has gone in peace. Then Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he is gone? You know that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you and to know your going out and your coming in and to know all that you are doing. We're going to pause right there. So, so we have the reliable narrator, so to speak, the author of 2 Samuel, telling us um, that there is no deception here. Abner has already stood up to the the weak son uh, of 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 the current technically king of Israel, uh, the son of Saul. He stood up to him. He said he was going to be on David's side. He's working hard to bring the people, and yet Joab wasn't there when it happened. Joab's upset. He thinks it's all a trick. Yeah, and I think uh, there there are. We find out in the next verses that that it may be there may be something else at play for Joab that uh, he is fine. He he has a personal uh, grief with Ab with Abner um, over something that's happened uh, prior to this um, in another battle, and uh, because of that, it's it's hard to know. The scriptures don't really give us any time where we know what's in people's heads or at least not very often. Um, and so it's hard to know exactly what Joab is after, but it seems to me from the rest of the context that Joab uh, is saying this partially because he has this grudge against Abner and, uh, and partially uh, so that he can have a chance for revenge um, rather than, I, I don't know if he really believes that uh, Abner is deceiving uh, David or He's been blinded by his past experience and and believes that that's the only thing that he's sort of capable of. I'm I'm not 100 percent sure on that, but but clearly he's after something else than simply trying to protect David. Well, and that makes sense. We learned in the last chapter, um, verse 18, actually of chapter two, that Abner killed David's nephew um, Ashiel, and jo- Joab is uh, the brother, right, of Ashiel. And uh, so, so yeah, he he definitely is on a personal vindictive mission to to uh, to get Joab. But we're also we also see here that there's he also has a I guess from a human point of view, I, I guess he would kind of have a good reason to be suspicious though, right? So not even necessarily yeah. giving Joab, uh, and now he's going to get a cup up comeuppance, but still 
not necessarily assigning to him negative intentions. Like I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, you know, get Abner and I'm going to mm -hmm. convince David that Abner is no good because I just don't like him. I mean, I think it's fair a little bit for Joab to suspect that Abner is being deceptive, even though we know that he's not. Yeah. And certainly, you know, you have the general from the other army, the, you know, a, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. So, uh, certainly, uh, if the general comes, there's probably reason to be suspicious. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's sort of, it's almost a, a kind of a Shakespearean thing. You know, you put this idea in David's head, is he really going to, which, which is he going to believe? Um, plus the, the matter of, um, Joab, uh, is not necessarily interested in finding out, uh, any more details. Again, he, he, like you say, he has, he has a reason to be suspicious because he's the generals of Saul's yeah. son's army, um, or Saul's army, which now is, uh, for Ishbosheth. But, uh, um, so it's hard to say exactly, um, any of those, or maybe a mixture of them could be the, could be the case. Yeah. I'm certainly not trying to get Joab off the hook, but I think it is important for us to remember that these are, you know, real people dealing with real sure. emotions yeah. and real issues. And, and, but what happens next though, is certainly all on him, uh, starting with verse 22. On the pardon me, starting with verse 26. When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Sirah. But David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Ashtael his brother. Afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before Yahweh for the blood of Abner the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house, and may the house of Joab never be without one who has discharge or who is leprous or who holds a spindle or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Ashtel to death in the battle of Gibeon. So this section tells us the the narrative of Joab and uh, I guess Abishai uh, killing Abner secretly, even though the king David had already told them that hey, listen, you know, he's on the up and up. So yeah, that doesn't get him off the hook for that, even if he felt like he had he wanted to get a vindication, right? It's it's God who uh, who decides those things, and they're doing it in secret because they know it's wrong. And David is upset, not obviously for lots of reasons, because this guy, he's interceding. He's talking to the tribes. He's privately meeting with the Benjaminites, right? This tribe of Saul. He's trying to make peace and unite the kingdom for David. And here this guy is exercising his own personal vendetta. Yeah, it's a, it's a, um, and I think this, this sort of demonstrates uh, sort of what, uh, a little bit of what you said at the beginning um, with David, um, even though David had multiple opportunities to kill Saul, uh, who was his enemy, who was trying to kill him, uh, he refused to do so. Uh, and in fact, when um, even though it, it was it didn't happen this way, but the the servant, uh, the Amalekite, who comes back and tells David about Saul's death uh, and lies about it, I think 
he thinks something else is going to happen. Uh, he's going to be promoted or something. But David has him killed because he put to death, or he says he put to death, um, uh, Saul, uh, the Lord's anointed. Um, so David has this, this he refuses to um, put to put to death either Yahweh's anointed or innocent people, at least innocent of the things that they are killed for. Um, and, uh, it's a, it's a, in, I mean, David's integrity on this point seems to be pretty consistent. Um, of course, later he has some other issues uh, with putting to get, putting to death innocent people. But, uh, up until this point, um, he's, he's fairly consistent that, uh, if they, if they shouldn't, uh, they haven't done anything worthy of that particular death, then they shouldn't be, um, killed. And, uh, so David, uh, takes this this kind of strange thing of of mourning for his enemy's general um, at least strange to the human observers well we also saw David mourn for Saul and so you know David's yes. faithfulness to God and doing things God's way and then lamenting when things are not done um, according to a, a righteous way now yes you know we it's hard for us to talk about David without knowing the, his own sins later. But we also remember that in the midst of his sins, he repents, which is a lot different than what Saul did when he sinned. He just lavished in it. But here, I guess I'd like to talk a little bit about the curse, right? Mm-hmm. So it makes sense when David says, listen, we're going we're, we're gonna to be guiltless before God for this blood, but it's going to fall upon the head of Joab. But then he says upon all of his father's house, and then he, he gives this curse, mm-hmm. which is interesting. You know, he can never be one without that doesn't have a discharge, right? So that would make one unclean or someone who in their family will be leprous or holds a spindle. I I think that means that they just have to work for a living. I'm not sure what that one means, but or dies by the sword or someone who's not poor. And eat. Um, you know, how do we reconcile the appropriateness of David? I guess cursing an entire family line for the for the sins of the father is this being done in sin is David doing this as the as the spokesperson and 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 uh stand in for God is he exercising judgment on God's behalf um how do we reconcile this this is pretty tough yeah and uh you know it's it seems to be i mean he just sort of piles up these various things that either make them unclean or some sort of uh injury or some sort of death um you know uh samuel um sort of uh does this in terms of um family of the high priesthood and and because of the the sins of the of the the sons um at the beginning of uh first samuel um the high priestly sons they they that there's kind of this the, the household is kind of out um, and it's going to come to its end. Um, that doesn't sort of explain David's position, but uh, uh, this is the, the, the sins of the father visited upon the third or fourth generation, I suppose. Um, whether David uh, is, is right in doing that, um, you know, a lot of these things, I think uh, we can sort of put them up to, human um actions that they do uh rightly or wrongly 
uh, often wrongly. Um, and, and yet, uh, God, I, I think this, this whole story is the, is the sort of playing out of, of Romans eight, that, uh, that God in Christ works all things to good for those, uh, who love him and are called according to his purpose, including all of our sins and maybe especially in Christ, all of our sins, uh, that, that God's purposes cannot be, um, cannot be undone and cannot be reversed, cannot be stopped. Uh, so I, I guess I don't necessarily have an answer for the rightness or wrongness of, of David's words or a curse on Joab and his family. But um, either way, uh, the, the end of it is that God is going to have his way. Um, but, but clearly Joab is in the wrong. So um, it's, he, it's, it's on Joab. Uh, I oh, say. certainly. It doesn't get Joab off the hook. It also kind of makes me wonder if this is a curse or if this is, I guess, I don't know how else to say it, uh, just David running his mouth, right? Being very upset, just sort of yeah. saying, okay, you know, may these, may these, this very broad curse fall upon you. Um, we, you know, David's going to end up leaving it to his son Solomon to kill him. We're going to see that in First King Kings, you know, he... Joab's mother is his sister. You know, there's there's a lot of family stuff in here too, but um, he's also pretty useful. <laughs> Joab yeah. is. I mean, he does. Yeah. He is a commander of the army after all. Uh, but sort just, of like those things where people are like, "Oh, we're not going to uh, do this until after our parents are dead because we don't want." You know, they. Uh, right? David does have some of those things. Oh, of course, of course. By the way, I did note in one of my commentaries, the spindle, uh, I think that refers to like a crutch. So he's talking about, you know, may they be leprous or crippled or or injured. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, well, moving on then. So starting with verse 31, David mourns Abner. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And King David followed the bier. And they buried Abner at Hebron. And the king lifted up his voice, and he wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. And the king lamented for Abner, saying, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered, as one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And all the people wept again over them. Then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was day. But David swore, saying, God do so to me and more if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. And the people took notice of it, and it pleased them, as everything the king did pleased all the people. So all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner the son of Ner. And the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I was gentle today, although anointed king, these men, the sons of Zariah, are more severe than I. Yahweh repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. So that's the end of our chapter. But, you know, we have here David. He's not only, I guess, visually communicating to the people that it wasn't his fault. He said, of course, that he and his kingdom are going to be guiltless. But I think it's striking that he 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 commands the people to mourn for Abner, which is fine, but he says to Joab and all the people who are with him to mourn. So here's the guy who kills him, who now um, kind of 
kind of reminds me of Esther a little bit. You know, he, he's he's now having to mourn for the guy he killed publicly in a public way. So even though he's not put to death because of his usefulness, it, it must be sort of humiliating. Yeah, I would imagine so. And, uh, you know, but here's the 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 evidence that uh, they've they've killed someone who was guiltless and on this point at least uh, of of trying to deceive David or make David look foolish um and uh and he laments for him not with as many words but uh he laments as he lamented for Saul and uh for Jonathan uh Saul and the sons of David I mean of uh, uh the sons of Saul um and so he he can can composes a lament, uh, kind of a funeral chant for Abner uh, that uh, this isn't dying in battle or dying before uh, kind of enemies in war. That's one thing. Uh, but this is like the sons of wickedness or the sons of perversity. Uh, and so throughout, David continues to to and he kind of reiterates the 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 wish that he has already said uh, with the last verse of the chapter, uh, Yahweh repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. Uh, <laughs> when again, Joab is there, um, then he, he, I think he probably gets the message. This is the second of the three times that David mourns also publicly, um, certainly recorded. And when maybe, I don't know, he should have mourned in private, but he does it publicly to make a point. And you know, the first time was for, for Saul. This time is for Joab. I think there's a lot of political stuff going on here, too. Not that David doesn't certainly uh, genuinely mourn because this guy was honorable and he was certainly working toward David being king. But at the same time, he could have put on sackcloth himself and mourned in private, but he does this very publicly. I, I see that he gives him basically a state funeral because he wants to communicate something. So I see a lot of uh, politics, and in a good way, going on. He's trying to communicate that to any of those people with whom uh, Abner was communicating that, hey, no, I didn't do it. You know, anything that any anything that he got from you guys or any, any uh, treaties we made or any consolations or covenants we've come up with, those, those I still want to do. So I also see it very in a, in a political way. Yeah, I mean, the number of times it says all the people here all the people who were with him, all the people wept, all the people wept again, all the people, uh, all the people. I mean, it's, you know, how many times uh, that were to, to understand that this is before all the people of Israel, um, that uh, David is doing this. So, so I agree. Um, this is a this is a making a public statement um, uh, as well as uh, uh public statement about Abner as well as about uh, David's own innocence in this in this death. I mean, he says in verse 39, right, I was gentle today, although anointed yeah. king. So he could have exercised appropriate punishment, right. but then truly in David's style, at least so far, he leaves it to the Lord. Yahweh repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. So we, we continue to see David ruling very well as as not even quite officially king yet, right? I mean, he's king, but uh, you know the, the the nation is not united in any any shape or fashion. Um, but David's power is growing, as we saw at the beginning of the chapter. 
Well, we're toward the end of our program. Anything else you want the people to know before we end today? I would just add to that point there that it seems to me that I, I think Ishbosheth is never called king in this chapter, uh, but David is continually called the king, um, and I, I he's Ishbosheth is called Saul's son, and I think that's probably a a point to a rhetorical point on on the authors uh, of making that what you said uh, that David is is the rightful king, um, but. You know, overall, I think the the one thing we can say for for certain is that in the midst of all of this, and and we see this today. I mean, in our own culture, elections, politics, all of, all of these people struggling for power and authority, and and trying to get their way, and lobbyists, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that that finally, uh, the the outcome is no different than it was for the sake of preserving David's line resulting in the Christ Jesus uh, that today still the Lord is is continuing to do his work and that nobody can stop him from having his way uh, and I think that that's that's what we that's what we mean when we say Jesus is Lord that uh, finally uh, regardless of whatever intrigues and and machinations of the of the peoples and the governments, uh, finally, Jesus is Lord, and he's going to be Lord uh, visibly on the last day. What a great way to end the program. Folks, uh, I'd like to thank my guest, the Reverend Tim Winterstein, pastor of Faith Lutheran Church in East Wenatchee, Washington. Thanks, brother, for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Folks at home, when we come back together, we're going to witness in chapter 4 the end of Saul's dynasty— and the treachery of two assassins. Uh, Ishbosheth, Saul's son and successor, loses his courage and his authority after the death of Abner, his commander, and he becomes a target for two of his own captains. They'll conspire to kill him and bring his head to David. Now they think they're doing David a favor, right, and securing their own reward, but they are mistaken because David is outraged for shedding innocent blood, right? That seems to be a pattern with David. We're going to learn about that and more. So until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray. Father, keep us in thy strong word.